Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Bavaro. This is a Daily. Over the past few days, the deadliest violence in years has erupted between Israel and Palestinians. Intense rocket fire from Gaza, answered by Israeli airstrikes, showing no sign of easing. Punctuated by hundreds of missiles streaking back and forth between Gaza and cities across Israel. Increasingly large numbers of casualties, including children from Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. And now, on the streets of Israel, by shocking scenes of mob violence against both Arabs and Jews. Today, I spoke with my colleague in Jerusalem, Isabel Kirshner, about why it's all happening and just how much worse it may get. It's Thursday, May 13th. Isabel, I know there may not be a simple answer to this question, but what was the trigger for this eruption of violence in Jerusalem over the past few weeks? Well, one of the triggers for sure is actually a case of six Palestinian families who are facing a looming eviction by Jewish landlords from their houses that they've been living in since the 1950s in a very small, quiet, leafy neighborhood of East Jerusalem, not far from the old city. In the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, the tension's been growing for weeks. Several Palestinian families face eviction from their homes. We are in the right. We are still resisting. We are staying here, even if they don't want us. This is a case that's been bubbling on for years and years. We don't understand why Arabs are here. I don't want any problems, but this land is Jewish and belongs to us. We don't believe anyone, not the courts or anyone else. The Israeli government has cast it as a a small private real estate dispute, but it's far from that. So you're talking about families who were displaced and made refugees during 1948, the war surrounding the creation of Israel, and they lost their homes in what became Israel. Mm -hmm. And they moved to that area of East Jerusalem when the Jordanians were in control. 
And the Jordanian government actually offered them an option in conjunction with the United Nations Refugee Agency at the time. They said, we'll build some houses in this neighborhood, a few dozen houses, and you can come live in them and we will register them for you. And in return, you should give up your refugee status. And the families actually agreed to that and moved into the houses But at the end of the day, somehow the Jordanian government never actually finally registered them in their names. Hmm. So then, in 1967, the Middle East war breaks out and Jordan loses control of the land of East Jerusalem and Israel takes control of it. Israel, after the 67 war, annexed that territory, but that move was never internationally recognized. And most of the world still considers it occupied territory. And although there was an agreement between the Jordanians and these Palestinian families over these homes, the land they sit on now gets to be controlled by Israel. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, although this is now a Palestinian populated area predominantly, the land was bought by a Jewish trust in the 19th century. And then in the meantime, religious trusts have sold the rights to a real estate agency people who want to move Jews back into that neighborhood. And there is nothing more in the Palestinian mindset, nothing more upsetting than the refugee issue. So it just took on much bigger proportions. You know, it's not just about uh, renting or an eviction order or a few houses. It suddenly becomes a national issue. So this is pretty complicated, but to summarize, these refugee Palestinian families were given these homes in the 1950s and told that it would be their home for good, but that didn't happen. It's still the case that legally these homes belong to Jewish landlords, and now those Jewish landlords are saying to these Palestinian families, we want you out, and in part they want them out because they want Jewish people to control these properties in East Jerusalem. That's correct. And uh, they're able to do that based on a 1970s law, which allows Jewish property owners to reclaim property in the east side of the city. But, you know, then on the other side, the Palestinians do not have the same recourse to reclaim properties they left on the west side of the city or elsewhere in Israel. So this has created a huge imbalance, and uh, the dispute has gone from the district court all the way up to the Supreme Court. And we were waiting for a final verdict in the case uh, of whether the evictions would go ahead or not on Monday. So, Isabel, how does this legal conflict over these evictions spiral into what we are seeing now? How does that happen? Okay, good question, because there are many, many other strands to this story. And I think one thing we have to look at is the calendar. We have been in a a month that has been extraordinary in many ways. So on the one hand, we've had the month of Ramadan in the Islamic lunar calendar. And Ramadan, the lunar calendar, it moves. Mm -hmm. So this year, Ramadan fell from mid-April to now. So it also coincided with a month in the Hebrew calendar when you also have quite a lot of emotive dates. You have uh, the Memorial Day for Fallen Soldiers. You have uh, the Independence Day. 
you get towards uh, the end of the month and you get Jerusalem Day, which is the Mm. day when some Israelis, not all, are celebrating what they call the reunification of Jerusalem in the 1967 war. I mean, this is a day where the Israelis are marking conquering the eastern part of the city, placing the, the Palestinians in the city, generally on the other side of the line, in what became occupied East Jerusalem. Got it. And that can be a very provocative day as well, because a central feature of it is what they call the flag parade, which is usually thousands of young, right-wing, mostly Jewish youths who march traditionally on a very contentious route right through the Muslim quarter of the old city to get to the Wailing Wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that was supposed to happen also on, yes, you guessed it, Monday. Hmm. So Monday of this past week becomes, through the eviction case and through the calendar, a kind of swirling collision of Palestinian grief and Israeli celebration and just a kind of powder keg, it sounds like. And we also had a lot else going on in the city building up to this day. Ramadan is a time when the city is very much on edge. It's a time of, you know, religious and nationalist fervor for many people. And it started with several other potential points of ignition. So you had the police, for example, barring Palestinians from gathering at Damascus Gate. Damascus Gate is one of the most beautiful and historic entrances to the old city Mm. from the east side. And it has these steps and going down to a plaza, a bit like a kind of amphitheater. And every night during Ramadan, traditionally, every year, Palestinians come, they gather there, They break their fast. There are cultural events. And it's a general kind of party, a festival Mm -hmm. atmosphere. But for some reason this year, the police banned anyone from gathering and sitting on the steps. They put up barricades and said it was for public order to allow people to safely enter and exit the old city. And this created huge tension. So it actually turned into a battlefield. Every night you would have the police trying to disperse the crowds there. Young Palestinians would protest and it would end in clashes. We also had what became known as the TikTok attacks. What are those? So there were a couple of Palestinian 17-year-old youths who filmed themselves for a TikTok video slapping an ultra-Orthodox Jew while he was sitting on the light rail train. And it kind of went viral, and there were one or two other similar attacks, and people just took great affront. And it ended up with hundreds of young Israeli Jews marching to Damascus Gate chanting things, including death to Arabs. And in the end, you had the police acting as a buffer between them and the Palestinian protesters at Damascus Gate and, you know, pitched battles on both sides with the police. So that was one other strand of great tension building up towards this Monday. 
So a very unstable situation is very much ignited by actions taken by multiple groups of people on the ground in Jerusalem, including the Israeli police. Right. So we come to Monday morning after all this buildup of all these different Mm -hmm. tensions in the city in this very tense month. And we get to the point where we've had Layla al-Qadr, which is a very holy day for Muslims at the end of Ramadan, when thousands of worshippers spend the night traditionally in the compound of the Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest site in Islam. And it's also probably one of the most hotly contested sites in the world because it's also Mm -hmm. the holiest place for Jews. They know it as Temple Mount, and it's the location of two ancient temples. So on Monday morning, which is Jerusalem Day as well, there were Jewish groups who were planning, as they traditionally do, to go up to the Temple Mount on a visit. And the Muslim worshippers, many of whom, as I say, had been there overnight, were expecting them, ready for, you know, what they would see as a kind of invasion on their holy territory on a very holy time of year. Hmm. The police stopped the Jewish groups from going up. But what we did see was the police in large numbers raid the compound. There are many different takes on whether they went in just to disperse crowds or they went in to stop stone throwing by protesters at the site that had already started or whether the stones only started after the police arrived. But whatever the exact circumstances, you ended up with a large police raid on the Aksamos compound. And it ended in stone-throwing clashes with police responding with tear gas, rubber-tipped bullets, stun grenades. And by the end of the main part of this confrontation, you have on the one side 330 Palestinians who've been injured, Hmm. 250 who were actually treated in the hospitals, And on the other side, 21 police officers injured. So, Isabel, what happens after this police raid on the mosque? How do Palestinians respond? So, by the afternoon, we get an ultimatum from Hamas, the Islamic group that holds sway in Gaza, saying if the Israelis do not remove all their forces from the mosque compound and from the area of East Jerusalem, the Palestinian area where the evictions were about to take place, something would happen. And they don't specify what that something is, but it will be serious. Israel will be paying the price. We'll be right back. What's good for society can also be good for your bottom line. And with iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can do more to build a strong portfolio for the long term. iShares Sustainable ETFs seek to deliver long-term outcomes by providing access to quality companies that may be better positioned to manage sustainability risks. 
Get a new perspective on your portfolio with iShares Sustainable ETFs. Learn more at iShares.com slash sustainable. So Isabel, what happens on Monday with this 6 p.m. deadline from Hamas for Israeli security forces to withdraw from East Jerusalem and from the mosque? Well, clearly the Israelis were not going to comply. So we waited till six o'clock and lo and behold, three minutes past six, we're sitting here in our office in Jerusalem. And suddenly we hear sirens wailing, incoming rocket warnings. And within maybe a minute, we suddenly hear a series of booms. You know, there's a feeling that uh, Jerusalem is under attack. Hmm. So once this deadline passes, Hamas sends missiles over into Jerusalem. Yeah. They're aiming towards Jerusalem. One was intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome, the anti-missile defense system. Others actually fell in communities and empty ground in the hills west of Jerusalem. And nobody was killed or hurt, but there was some property damage. And this was highly unusual and clearly was not going to go without an Israeli response. And what is that response? Well, Israel had clearly been anticipating some kind of action from Gaza and always has what it calls a bank of targets that it's built up. And Mm. Israel immediately began with airstrikes in Gaza. And now Gaza is a very small and crowded territory. So even if Israel says it's targeting military targets with very precise weapons and taking all the precautions it can to avoid civilian casualties, inevitably there are civilian casualties as well. So from the beginning, the airstrikes were deadly. There were two children killed very early on that night, and each side just kept stepping it up. Israel taking down tower blocks in Gaza, multi-story buildings that housed Hamas offices or uh, headquarters of various types of Hamas. And Hamas, again, issued another ultimatum and said to Israel, if you hit any more uh, civilian buildings, we're going to hit Tel Aviv. And a huge, huge salvo, uh, barrages of rockets began uh, streaming out of Gaza and slamming into suburbs around Tel Aviv. You know, things have just been escalating all the way. Hmm. So by Wednesday afternoon, two days into the conflict, we have at least 53 Palestinians killed, according Hmm. to the Gaza health officials, 14 of them children and more than 300 wounded. And on the Israeli side, you have at least six people who've been killed and, you know, scores injured. Isabel, it is often felt in moments like this that Hamas's missile attacks, as terrifying as they are to Israelis, often fail to inflict significant damage on Israel based on the technology that Hamas is using, and that the Israeli counterattacks tend to be much better targeted and more destructive. And the death toll seems to suggest that that has been the case so far here, a kind of disproportionate impact. 
look, disproportionate is a term that, uh, you know, is often used. I think there's certainly the circumstances that Israel has total air superiority in terms of its air force. The Hamas rockets are rather inaccurate. Israel does have the Iron Dome system, which manages to intercept, the authorities say, about 90% of rockets that are headed to population centers in Israel. But the Gaza Strip is just, first of all, very crowded, very densely populated. The Israelis will tell you that Hamas operates from civilian areas within Gaza, making it very, very, very difficult to avoid collateral damage. At this point, is it fair to describe what's happening here as a war, as warlike? What, what is this? It feels pretty warlike. Um, if we end up with a ground campaign on the Israeli forces side, it will definitely be a war. And is there talk of a ground operation? Well, no confirmation of one, but some preparations seem to be being made. There are some call-ups of reserves. There are some... Uh, troops and vehicles moving down towards the border. So it's not being ruled out, but it's hard to tell. I think Israel won't rush into a ground invasion because mm -hmm. they are usually very costly. But sometimes, you know, it's uh, part of the tactical war to signal that you're ready for one, mm -hmm. which could also be what's going on. What are the leaders on all sides of this saying about this moment? and how it might come to an end. I realize that's a tricky question because both the Israeli and Palestinian leadership is very much in flux, but what are they saying about it? So we heard on Wednesday night a very strong statement from President Mahmoud Abbas. He leads the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and is a main rival of Hamas. And he was basically telling Israel, end your occupation and we've been hearing more from Hamas. So Ismail Haniya, a senior Hamas political leader, sent a recorded address to a Hamas-affiliated television station. He spoke about being contacted by Egypt, Qatar, the United Nations, with uh, some kind of talk of maybe working towards a ceasefire. But he said since, in his view, Israel had started this, it was Israel's responsibility to be the ones to begin to end it. On the Israeli side, we're hearing that uh, we're not done yet. The defense minister said on Wednesday there's no end date. And the night before, the prime minister also said, you know, this could take some time. So it sounds like from leadership, there's not an eagerness to quickly bring this to an end. Right. It does seem that on both sides, they're not rushing to end this and it might actually be helping them. How so? On the Palestinian side, you have Hamas operating really in a vacuum with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, who's aging and weak, and Hamas really trying to reinstate itself. 
using its currency of leading the resistance、mm-hmm. and defending Jerusalem, which is, you know, always a rallying cry on the Palestinian side. And on the Israeli side, you have a very confused situation because Prime Minister Netanyahu is currently standing trial on corruption charges. He has been unable to form a government after four elections in two years, and his、uh, rivals were working on trying to form an alternative coalition, which would have seen him removed from office for the first time in twelve years. And I think you know we're not sure how this is going to play out, but somehow he might well be able to capitalize on this time as being not the right time to have a change in government. Isabel, we started this conversation by talking about the eviction case in East Jerusalem that, in many people's eyes, lit the fuse. That has now turned into this warlike conflict. What has happened with that ruling? So the ruling was supposed to come on Monday. On Sunday, after the government had spent you know weeks saying this is just a private real estate dispute, the attorney general finally stepped in and asked for a delay in the case so that he could study the materials, get involved, state an opinion. And the judges gave him a month, suspending the verdict for at least thirty days. This is one case where the Israelis stepped in to try and defuse a situation, but of course it was too little, too late. So this ruling has been delayed, but not for all that long. And eventually, when it comes out, it will no doubt influence the course of this conflict that has erupted over the past few weeks. But it strikes me as. Is odd and maybe a bit ironic that the Israeli government has called this eviction case a real estate dispute. When you could argue that the entire history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is ultimately a dispute over real estate, over land, and over the idea of home. You certainly could see it that way. I mean, you know, with all the security and national and religious. Aspects to this conflict that's been going on for a century. At the end of the day, it's about who rules territory where, and who gets to call a place home. Yeah. Isabel, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. The Times reports that as the conflict expands, rival mobs of Jews and Arabs are carrying out violent attacks in several Israeli cities and towns. One occurred in a suburb of Tel Aviv, where dozens of Jewish extremists took turns beating and kicking an Arab motorcycle driver, even as his body lay motionless on the ground. Another occurred in northern Israel. Where an Arab mob beat a Jewish man with sticks and rocks, leaving him in critical condition. On Wednesday night, the United Nations warned that the conflict could soon intensify into quote all-out war, and the Biden administration dispatched a senior American diplomat to the Middle East to meet with Israeli and Palestinian leaders, 
and to urge both sides to de-escalate. We'll be right back. The FX original documentary Pride is a six-part series from Emmy Award-winning Killer Films and Grand Jury Prize-winning Vice Studios. Six renowned LGBTQ plus directors explore heroic and heartbreaking stories that define us as a nation, chronicling the struggle for LGBTQ plus civil rights in America from the 1950s through the 2000s. FX's Pride is a special two-week event starting Friday, May 14th on FX. Streaming next day FX on Hulu. Here's what else you need to know today. On Wednesday, during a closed-door vote, House Republicans ousted Representative Liz Cheney as their party's third-highest-ranking leader over her decision to speak out against former President Trump, his role in the January 6th riot at the Capitol, and his lies about fraud in the 2020 election. Uh, I uh, will do uh, everything I can to ensure uh, that uh, the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. We have After the vote, Cheney said she had no regrets and vowed that she would continue to speak out against Trump and seek to break his hold over the Republican Party. We have seen the danger uh, that he continues to provoke with his language. Uh, we have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the Constitution. Uh, and I think it's very... And... The company that operates the major fuel pipeline shut down by a cyber attack said that the pipeline's operations had begun to resume. The shutdown of the pipeline had raised fears of gas shortages and triggered panicked buying in several states, including Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Today's episode was produced by Austin Mitchell, Soraya Shockley, Robert Jimison, Annie Brown, and Daniel Guimet. It was edited by M.J. Davis Lynn, with help from Phyllis Fletcher. It was engineered by Chris Wood and contains original music by Rochelle Bonja and Dan Powell. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. If you're single, are you dating on the Match app yet? Are you a sourdough starting, microgreens growing, closet organizing superstar? It turns out post-pandemic singles may be the most interesting people out there. And they're ready to have those what-did-you-do-last-year conversations. After this year of being focused on yourself, there's never been a better time to partner up. Download the Match app, set your preferences, and their powerful recommendation engine takes it from there. And bonus, it's now 100% free to message your top matches. Get ready to start something great. Download Match today.